0: Of the clear blue sky and the tears that I cried for that woman. Gonna flood you, Big River, and I'm gonna sit right here until I die. I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it tore me up every time I heard her drawl, Southern drawl. Then I heard my dream went back downstream, Caborden and Davenport, and I followed you, Big River, when you called. Well, hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, In this episode, I will begin looking at Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Um, So this was written between The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Um, And of course, Mark Twain had been writing a lot of other things between that. But our collection, our Library of America collection, puts uh, the Mississippi writings in one volume. So if we come next, uh, kind of in the order that we're given in this collection, we, we, we come to Life on the Mississippi. I think it's 1883 is the publication date. Um, So, we start this book with uh, a bit of an epigraph where um, it's from Harper's Magazine, 1863, in the midst of the Civil War, where uh, they write, But the basin of the Mississippi is the body of the nation. All the other parts are but members, important in themselves yet more important in their relations to this exclusive of the lake basin and of the 300,000 square miles in Texas and New Mexico, which in many aspects form a part of it. This basin contains about 1, a square miles in extent. It is the second great valley of the world being exceeded only by that of the Amazon unquote. So, um, mark twain certainly wants to make the mississippi the central corridor the central geographical feature of the united states and i think that's a basically defensible position um but what is this book about um so it's basically in two parts i want to say uh maybe you could subdivide a little bit more but i think it's essentially in two parts and the first part of the book deals with his own past as a pilot of a steamboat on the Mississippi. And in doing that, he is presenting a really excellent labor history. He presented a work that that talked about the training, uh, the knowledge, the skill. It is a celebration of the labor that goes in, that are under the hats of the pilot. And the other workers in the Mississippi. You know the people who ran the steamboats, who kept the uh, if 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 the rivers of America are the arteries, the steamboat captains, steamboat pilots, steamboat workers were the the heart that pumped that pumped the commodities, right? That tied the nation together as long as it was together before the Civil War broke it apart. It it's an amazing class of people. Um, and you learn a lot about just what it takes to be one of those people in in, in looking at Mark Twain's account here. Um, that's the first part of the book, is his own background. Now, now, of course, had the Civil War not happened, Mark Twain could have stayed on as a Riverboat pilot. If he would have, who knows, if that would have been in his future. But if... You know, if the Civil War hadn't happened, he probably would have stayed on as a as a, as a was a, as a steamboat pilot, maybe moved up to other positions, but it seems steamboat pilot is like the the best position, like the one that were really that matters. And then, so anyways, we get this we get this description of the training and education of it. Uh, And and of course the Civil War happens and he joins the Confederate Army for a while before giving up on his life as a soldier. I think it was more like the Confederate militia or something. And then uh, Mr. Clemens, uh, after the war, became like a frontier journalist and did a lot of his writings and, and then eventually became the novelist and the writer that we know. So that's the first part, is that career that was cut short by the war, it seems this the this second. Actually, it's the second two thirds of the book. Really, is a travel log. Now, by this point, Mark Twain has already written a pretty famous and well-known travel log called Innocent Abroad*, which we'll get to when we're done with uh, the Mississippi stories. So that's a that's part of the genre that he writes. He he enjoyed traveling and writing sarcastically about the places he visited, and and commenting on them that's really a lot of his wisdom um and he's going to do that with the mississippi so i some point while he was writing this book he realized he's going to have to come back to the mississippi so he goes back and he does this kind of he does the tourist thing on the mississippi and in doing so he he acknowledges how much the mississippi has changed what has become the development the progress of America in the industrial age. So by the second half of the book, it becomes as much about the Mississippi as it is about the transformation of America into uh, an industrial nation and what that means for the Mississippi itself and what it means for the nation as a whole. And if the heart is redundant, I mean, there must be new, like there's new veins by the time he's coming back, the, the railroads. And that's something that's in the backdrop of this. Is the Mississippi by the 1880s still what it was at the time of at the time Tom Sawyer, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn? Those books are set, or the or his own youth when he was a worker in the in the Mississippi. So that's in broad strokes what the book's about. Um, it's got a whole bunch of chapters. Um, it's got forty some chapters, 45, almost 50 chapters. I'll talk about the first part as much as I can. Um, The first couple chapters, basically the first two, I suppose, deal with the history of the Mississippi and the, the natural history and the history of the Mississippi. And of course, central to this is LaSalle. Central to this story is Francis Parkman. I did a whole series on Parkman a while ago. Um, so you can go back and listen to that if you want. The volume on La Salle is particularly important because he is sort of the, not the discoverer of the of the Mississippi, but the one who really kind of incorporates that into the French Empire and, and makes it like he's the, he's kind of the founding father of the Mississippi, more so than, Ponce, uh, is it Ponce de Leon, De Soto, one of those two. I think it's De Soto. He also talks a lot about the natural history of the Mississippi and just how it is a power on its own. It's, you know, a lot, it's often been said that, like, in Huckleberry Finn and stories like that, like, the Mississippi is a god. Well, he establishes this kind of thing in the terms of natural history, talking about the power of the Mississippi just to move matter, move water, command so many of the rivers of, of the United States. It's the master waterway, and it's the central environmental, it's a central environmental fact of America for him. Um, and then he gets to LaSalle and the history of the discovery and the development of the Mississippi since that point. But that's, that's just preliminary matters. It's not really what Mark Twain's particularly interested in. Um, and then he moves on then to tell about his own history with the Mississippi and his, you know, how he became acquainted with it and how he started his career uh, in the Mississippi and with it. Now, I, I guess I would say that it doesn't seem to me that, that Mark Twain is that particularly interested in the actual history of of the Mississippi he does, though, make an interesting point that about his accidental discovery and how it was essentially accidentally discovered a couple times. And, and that's kind of an interesting historical curiosity, given the significance of of the river ecologically and eventually historically. So in Chapter three, he kind of moves from that and he starts to talk about the people of the Pacific or sorry, the people of the Mississippi. Um, I always have the Pacific in my mind. I'm sorry about that. But uh, the people of the Mississippi. And he, he's not quite in the story yet, but you can tell he's kind of observing that. And he talks about the transition from the keelboats, which are the early form of transportation in the, in the Mississippi and early American history, to the steamboats, which we all know, which is kind of, what he would pilot, what kind of the Mississippi is most known for is the steamboat travel. And then he goes into this long passage that he was writing for The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Remember, he was writing The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn before he wrote this book. And and he would come back to it later and finish the book. And he never quite knew the form it would take. And of course, it would take a pretty amazing form finally when he when he completes it but we know from this that he had a lot of drafts and ideas there and this is part of it um so basically this is a passage that would have been in the adventures of huckleberry finn had he included it but he didn't uh which would have been when huck finn was sneaking on the steamboat scene um and this was a a focus on the rough people the nature of the people on the steamboats—how they were just kind of rowdy and vulgar and salt-of-the-earth types of people—and it's it's a window into that adult world. I, and I know why it's gonna it would have fit into Hook, Finn, is because it's I mean that's the theme of the of the story, right? Is that the adult world is kind of corrupted and vulgar and dirty and not really worth our time ultimately. But I also sort of know why this uh, he sort of wanted to include it or or maybe why he didn't want to include it, because he, he, he has a love of these people because they're kind of his people. They're 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 who he grew up with. And so maybe he doesn't want to put them in the same kind of category as like um, Douglas, Miss Douglas and and pap and those care other the 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 duke and the king and these other characters from huckleberry finn but i don't know um but this chapter is a long passage from a draft of the adventure of huckleberry finn so anyways then we get to um his him running away to become a pilot And there's definitely an aspect of social contagion here that he is attracted by the river and he's bored with, you know, if you read Huckleberry Finn and and Tom Sawyer, especially Tom Sawyer, you know, kind of what his image of growing up in, in this region is. So we kind of understand why he wants to run away and move away from that. And he runs away to become a pilot. He's initially rejected, but it's kind of like partially the grooming process, I suppose, of of making him a, a steamboat pilot is to make him kind of fight for the job. Because as we'll see later on, they're, they're incredibly well paid. I was actually struck, uh, amazed at how well they're paid. I think I'll talk about this in the next episode a little bit. Is that, I think it was the equivalent of, of like $9,000 a month in current dollars is, is what the pilots were paid. And it was like they earned it because they had to know so much and they had to go through so much training to get to that position where they could actually pilot, you know, a ship. I I looked at pilots when I was doing my my work on sailors and, and, you know, they would, of course, help the ships get into the harbors. They would know the local depths and those issues. And that was difficult work. But these people had to know the whole river because the whole river could change season to season or week to week and that could mean like the destruction of the ship if you weren't careful so they had to not only be able to like read the seas or oh, sorry, sorry read the river read the banks remember what it was the last time they were there remember what it should be uh interpret that in the context of the of the soundings and the depth measurements they're getting from the other members on the ship it's a really involved process and it took a really super long time to train someone to do that. In fact, Mark Twain is really only interested in his training process. He's, he doesn't talk much about being a pilot after he's been trained. It's kind of, it's sort of after he's trained, he, he zooms the narrative forward to the present when he comes back later on as a, as a, as a tourist, essentially. So the term for what he becomes after he finally does... I'll aboard a ship is a cub pilot, which is basically a trainee pilot trainee. Um, now, his his kind of initial plan is he's just sort of running away from home. He's still a young man, and his his original plan is to, get to go to the Amazon, go to New Orleans, and then hitch hit, a ship that'll take him to the Amazon. And instead, he um gets to know the workers and the people of the Mississippi through the steamboats and he decides he wants to maybe stay there and and he basically takes on the challenge of being trained as a as a pilot he needs to convince the the pilot of the of the boat he's on to to teach him uh he has to uh pay money for his education it's like 500 dollars or something which isn't that it's like two months wages so it's not insignificant Um, and the person we meet and is gonna, we're going to stay with through much of the early part of this book is this Mr. Bixby. Mr. Bixby is the pilot who trains Mark Twain and the young Samuel Clemens into the work. Um, and pretty quickly, our hero here, our young Mark Twain, realizes that this is just work and difficult and and he's constantly being challenged. So there's a, a narrative here about education, about what it takes to learn. Um, and, how you, and how you have to be a good teacher, how you have to push your student, give them real-world examples, not just give them academic knowledge. Expect a lot from them. I, I think there's some lessons here of just how, what it takes to actually educate someone. Give them knowledge that's relevant to them. Uh, challenge them, force them to learn, make it essential to their, their identity that they're, that they're, that they're learning. Right, not just feed them information. So you got a lot of stories like where Bixby will ask him like, so you know, how do you you know some detail about the about the river and Mark Young Mark Twain will be like, I don't know anything about that, and the response will be, well, oh, how how could you not know that, right? Go back and study essentially, and and force him to to learn it, and eventually that becomes much more direct in in putting him in threatening situations giving him command of the ship giving him the responsibility at various times and the result of that is a pretty well-trained um pilot which is what he became right so that's what we get through much of the first 100 pages of this book then is various aspects of his education culminating in him being tested by mr um, bixley um but the details here are so wonderful. And I guess that's what I guess I'm going to close on. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, on this because I, I do have three more episodes where I, where I need to talk about this book, but um, is the important thing is just how highly skilled these pilots were, how they could like smell the river or see it or notice the subtle differences in the currents and, and be able to speak confidently about the depth of the 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 river based just on the like the movement of the currents or the animal life or or remembering what the bank looked like last time they passed and there's a great situ there's a great moment where the banks actually lower than the last time they were on you know on that run but the conclusion isn't what you'd expect as that the river's going down, it's that the river's going up because there's other evidence you need to consider. Like it was at one, one point lower and the river's actually increasing in depth. And this is stuff that these pilots have to keep in their head. Um, and then the differences between navigating at day and night, how these pilots had to be able to navigate just as well at, day, at, at daytime as at nighttime, and how difficult that was, and how at nighttime you didn't see everything as clearly. And you couldn't see the river quite as clearly, and and there was more to distract you or mislead you. Um, how did you communicate with each other and 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 keep a, a, a camaraderie and a, and a solidarity among the different pilots? And it's just really joyous to watch our, our our author here develop his confidence about the about his knowledge and actually learn something, right? And, and it's such an interesting contrast to like the adventures of Tom Sawyer, where the learning that's taking place at school and at church seemed to have no relevance to his life. And of course, there's no real learning taking place there. But w- there's a lot of learning taking place in in the first chapters of the life on the Mississippi when we see a young man motivated by challenges motivated by life and death situations motivated by his desire to have a profession to to learn i think i think there's a lot here about education actually that's and and mr bixby one of the unsung heroes of american education i want to believe that kind of even he's kind of a rough guy one of the great educators of our time of of modern america so anyways that's all i'm going to say um i know it's not that much but I have three more episodes to cover this book. And in the next episode, we'll, we'll say more about the travel log turn, how it turns, it's even before the halfway point where it turns into a travel narrative and it becomes much more about the transformation of America. And if you're going to look at the transformation of America, what better place to look than the, the, the heart of America, which is the, the Mississippi or the circulatory system of America so anyways that's going to be it for now uh thanks for listening uh i'll see you next time with part two of my, my thoughts on life on the Mississippi. then you took me to st louis later on down a river a freighter said she's been here but she's gone boy she's gone I found her trail in Memphis But she just walked up the bluff She raised a few eyebrows And then she went on down along Now won't you bat it down by Baton Rouge